Profiles in Cinemania. Whitley Streber. And we're rolling. I said rolling, tape hand free, you know. Hang on, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna need some extra PPE for this one. Okay, okay, that's better. Okay, that is better. Clean suit, check. Goggles, check. Sleeve seals, check. Kevlar vest, check. Tinfoil line fez, check. Put on your respirator. <laughs> Amateur. That could block the most important Cinemania deterrent. <sighs> 16-year-old Lefroy cast strength, check. Oh, and? Assured, O oh attentive ones, there is an ample reason for the extra precautions I have taken. For today, dear listeners, we examine a true polymath of the peculiar. A peak 80s science fiction author turned parapsychologist, transcendentalist guru, apostle, podcasting prophet, and self-proclaimed savior. He modernized the tropes of scientifically explained supernatural and sexified our monsters and single-handedly invented the concept of alien abduction complete with anal probing. To even consider his Wikipedia pages to invite the itchings of Cinemania. To ponder the truth behind his tales without the proper precautions borders on sanity suicide. Is he truly a case of write what you know? Or more of a life imitates art, especially when my so-called art can't make the New York Times bestseller list anymore, but those Gee, gosh darn, cult leaders look like they got a cushy gig, sort of guy. Close the door, lean in, for Anki's sake, pour yourself a drink, and join us as we attempt to unravel the Gordian knot. That is Whitley Streber. Lewis Whitley Streber was born to humble beginnings in Austin, Texas in 1945. Keep it weird, Austin. He recounts his many, many memoirs that he got his first good look at the stars as a child while visiting the Maverick Carter House Observatory, which is a little weird because it wasn't open to the public until 2018. Hell, Aileen Carter would have still been living there at the time, along with numerous tenants, none of whom have been able to corroborate this harmless little tale. But, as Whitley tells it, this is when he first fell in love with the stars. And let me tell you, if his tales be true, the stars really fell in love with him later on. Now, as he also tells it, he and several of his friends used to go wandering in the almost basin woods, and there they were, quote, groomed in secret by a cloaked and hooded figure who taught them all about the origins of the universe, past lives, oh, and also how to time travel. All of the comments coming to mind right now are very, very inappropriate. So let me share them. So basically you're telling me that this guy is an L. Ron Hubbard level fabulist? 
Yeah, uh, maybe less success in other people believing him to build an entire cult out of it. But but, but as endeavoring to be the oh, yeah. record of the boomer generation. Oh, shit, yeah. <clears throat> so, not to be outdone by himself, Whitley says that in his early forays into the past, he learned that in a past life, he was the personal tutor of a young Emperor Octavian. And so, therefore, he was personally responsible for the Roman Empire surviving an extra 400 years. No, I'm <laughs> quoting. I am quoting. Now, for the really shocking bit, after graduating college, he went to work in... Dun-dun-dun! Advertising. Yes, a raconteur of Whitley's caliber found his calling right away in the oldest and most honest of professions. In less than 10 years, he rose to the ranks of several New York City agencies to become a vice president. But then, he gave it all up to become a writer in 1977. And success was not far behind for our dear Whitley. Within a year, his debut novel, Wolfen, was a smashing success. He followed it up with The Hunger in 1981, and both became films with big-name stars like Albert Finney, Gregory Hines, even David Bowie. His writing career seems touched by a little Ziggy Stardust, if you know what I mean, from an early age, much like a child in the Almost Basin Woods. <laughs> okay, okay, no more. Honest. Come on, knock it off. Hang on, let me just wipe this Jesus juice off my goggles. Motherfucker. Come on, quit. That's the last Let's one. Just knock it off. I swear. As you might guess from the names, Whitley Strieber seemed to have the idea of simply working his way down the list of classic MGM monsters. Each time, he offered up scientific explanations rather than truly supernatural. Bloodborne viruses, ancient genetic hybrids, secret experimentation. He also spent a fair bit of time in his novels dealing with the more practical aspects of monster life. Blending in, hunting, cleaning up murders, covering up your secret society or your immortality and complicated mortgage transfers, that sort of thing. In the book, Miriam doesn't so much create more vampires as use her potent blood virus to make human-vampire hybrid children. I, I, I mean lovers. I, I mean children lovers. Dude, wait, that's not wait, true. I you can't say I stuff like that. I wasn't trying to make that. a joke. It's, it's just, it, not in this climate. It's right, Dick. But, despite his pseudoscience obsession, Streber also blended in plenty of myth and lore. In the books, Catherine Deneuve's sexy, vampiric, seductress Miriam was born in ancient Egypt to a woman, who was originally human, but evolved into a vampire. The woman's name? Lamia, a creature of Greek mythology that stole and ate children from their cribs. The Romans gradually evolved the monster story into a more general seductress and devourer of men. The antithesis of the proper subservient woman as a mother and nurturer. What an ample opportunity then for early Christian theologists looking to do a little syncretizing. We've got one of those, we've got one of those uppity women right at the beginning of this here Hebrew Bible. So who was Catherine Deneuve's mom? Lilith, the original homewrecker. And boy, does she flip the patriarchy on its head when her lovers inevitably wither away way, way, way past their sell-by dates they're still aware. So she can't stand to kill them. Instead, she locks them away in steel chests. Holy shit! That is one fucked up harem right there. The film plays down the admittedly odd feminism of the novel in favor of more universally rampant sexiness. Pan sexiness? Whatever. But turns out, Whitley Streeper's work always had a bit of a social conscience. 
Uh, even in Wolfen, one of the main subplots centered on both police corruption and the healthcare system, as the main character's policeman husband was forced to take bribes in order to get proper healthcare for his father. The book delves into the corruption, cover-ups, and general police incompetence at some length, and the horrors of the American healthcare system, and that was back in 1978. Strieber wrote a series of books from 1984 to 1986 dealing with fears of nuclear and environmental self-destruction, and these themes pop up over the course of his career. 1999's subtly titled The Global Coming Superstorm posits a rather outlandish possibility of a very sudden environmental collapse, but based in the scientific community's very real findings about global warming. We all know that book better as uh, the John Cusack zinger, The Day After Tomorrow. Yep, that's a Whitley Strieber original too. But, surprise surprise, liberal science fiction didn't go over quite as well without all of the sex. And uh, Whitley's follow-up books through the 80s didn't fare nearly as well. And he couldn't have that, now could he? This is the man who saved Rome, after all. <laughs> now, before we dive into the well of weird here, let's consider his transition. But don't skip ahead for fear of some dreary montage of boozy nights spent over a typewriter with nothing but all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy on the page, crying on a therapist's couch and finding comfort in the arms of strange shit shoes who charge by the hour. Whitley may not have jumped straight from flash-in-the-pan novelist into full-on star messiah, but this diversion is definitely going to dally in some grade-A wackadoodle secret society stuff. First, he joined the Gurdjieff Foundation. The Gurdjieff Foundation was the brainchild of mystic, metapsychologist, and dolly-worthy mustache conveyor George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, along with his top student, the esotericist, <coughs> sorry, esotericist Peter Uspensky. The foundation taught the fourth way, a combination of fakir, monk, and yogic traditions designed to achieve higher consciousness. And by fakir, we do indeed mean Sufi mystics. So yes, if nothing else, these folks had ripping dance parties. Whitley didn't stay long, leaving in 1985, but it must have left an indelible mark because he continued to reference the Fourth Way's principles and cosmology in his own writing through the rest of his career. Admittedly, when I say reference, I do mean he often repeated them word for word or with minor alterations, not that he cited them as teachings of the Fourth Way. So you know, he ripped them off. But it's certainly possible that while he left the organization, their lessons actually resonated with him. Either that, or he got to see firsthand how the teachers of the Fourth Way could get away with autocratically dictating every minute detail of their students' behavior, complete with plenty of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Let's figure it out together, shall we? In any event, with his career on the downside, Whitley does something rather drastic. In 1987, he publishes Communion, a tale of a man abducted from his cabin in upstate New York. Because where else would you get abducted from? Only this time, without ending up underneath giant stadium parking lot. Now, he's not saying they're aliens, but he's not not saying they're aliens either. The narrator simply calls them the visitors, which is a very gentle euphemism considering these visitors subject him to all manner of anal probing described in long and loving detail over the course of the book, but with little lubrication. And so a meme was born before memes were a meme. Everyone knows now what happens when you get abducted by aliens. Hell, it was even in an episode of South Park. Probably most of us don't even know why aliens have this reputation. It seems unfair. Hashtag not all aliens. But 
When we tell that horribly xenophobic joke, it's Whitley Strieber there in the back of our brains. Now, Whitley had written a very similar short story the year before called Pain, <laughs> right, featuring abduction by an alien dominatrix. But while he added the sex back into his little allegories, it still didn't return him to the stardom he deserved. In communion, he found the key that unlocked the door, that opened to the path, that led to the switch that shined a light on the key. No, no, not the first key. Now the metaphoric key to reviving his career. He had introduced the sensational element of anal probing, yes. But wait, there's more. What is it, you ask? Why, communion wasn't listed as fiction at all. It was a memoir. The man in the cabin? Lewis Mother Whitley fucking Streber. That's right. Whitley claimed in his book that he'd been abducted two years earlier, the same year he left the Gurdjieff Foundation, by a goddamn UFO. And how does the public respond, you ask? No, no, I'm not spying on you through your smartphones. I didn't actually hear you ask me anything. I was just guessing. You're safe. I don't know what's in your browser history, you filthy little kumquat-flavored panda bear. Instant number one bestseller. Over two million copies sold, optioned by Hollywood. Gets to write the screenplay himself, jealous much? Played by Christopher Walken. He publishes a sequel, Transformation, a year later, with sales nearly as good as Communion. Everything is coming up Whitley. This return to success is uh, not without its bumps, of course. Transformation hits the LA Times bestseller list, top 10, but under fiction, which Strieber calls a reprehensible, ugly example of blind prejudice. Uh, we're not sure what they're prejudiced against exactly. Anyway, critics may have called out some rather striking similarities between the visitors and the strange beings from his earlier sci-fi novel Cat Magic. But Strieber claims that was an unconscious act on his part, as he hadn't yet figured out that the experience was real and not a dream he had while freebasing in his cabin a couple of years prior. Allegedly. <laughs> we, are, we are not accusing anybody of using drugs in their cabin. This is allegedly. And uh, Strieber was not entirely pleased with how the movie adaptation turned out. Critics hated it. Today it has a measly 33% of Rotten Tomatoes. And Whitley did not care for Walken's portrayal of him. No, the aliens, they're here for me. They're picking me up and dragging me into the spaceship. Probe me. Not my ass. No, that doesn't go in there. It's <laughs> not meant to. That's an outhole only. That's where I keep my father's pocket watch. <laughs> now, in the movie, he tears his family apart over his vision, slowly going crazy. Little does he know, his best friend is actually Narn Ambassador Jakar, also known as the late, great Andreas Katsoulis. So while the visions are true, it turns out to be some kind of extraterrestrial curse, and his son will suffer the same fate. Like, fucking dark. In an interview, Whitley said, I think Christopher Walken played me like I was a complete jerk. Which is an odd thing to say, since he wrote the screenplay. Apparently, Dan Aykroyd wanted the role, himself a true believer in all things alien. He looks a little more like Whitley Streamer, too. He thinks a little more like Whitley Streamer, that's for sure. Uh, whether or not he does, you know, Walken does not look remotely like Whitley Streamer. And thank God for Walken. Uh, but anyway, no matter. Whitley was on a mission. He followed up communion with four more books, 
and elaborated on his original tale of uh, nighttime liaisons that there has been and continues to be sporadic contact with the visitors, who hope to guide humanity to a higher understanding of existence through a drunk, miserable ex-advertiser turned failing writer? Sure, why not? No more contradictions there than in any of his other claims. From 1988 to 2011, he gradually transitions to full-on Apostle to the Stars. Uh, uh, or of the stars. Maybe from the stars? Anyway, he makes himself the alien's messenger with a blender full of more fiction that still has much the same plot as his so-called life, memoirs, purported letters from readers with similar experiences, and all his usual themes of espionage, secret conspiracies, hybrid species, and Lots and lots of BDSM sex. Whitley, ever marketing savvy, also became an early adopter of a new medium, one beloved to both yuppie liberals and basement-dwelling fringers, the podcast. Wait a minute. Wait. Is that a... Moving right along. He was a regular contributor to Dreamland and Coast to Coast AM, run by Art Bell, the famed conspiracy and paranormal broadcaster. In 1999, Struber completely took over hosting duties of the Dreamland podcast. He finally had the personal fiefdom he always dreamed of. In 2001, our man's personal journey takes yet another turn from mostly space-agey into the truly new-agey in yet another memoir called The Key. This one, though, is self-published, outside of the Visitors series. Is it Streberth 616? In the key, Whitley claims he was visited back in 1998 by a mysterious man, this time uncloaked, while Whitley is signing autographs at a convention. They spend the next two days in his hotel room talking about everything from his typical fare of alien abductions and climate change, along with a quick dip in the Holocaust pool, and then move on to more spiritual topics of soul-powered machinery and the afterlife. The so-called Master of Keys, because the title of Keymaster was already taken by Rick Moranis, presents Whitley with a, quote, new image of God. It's unclear how this could be a new image when it is largely self-plagiarized from his own past works of fiction, repackaged as a supposed transcript of his two-day parapsychic bender with the Master of Keys. Never you mind he wrote it three years later, he was absolutely certain he remembered it with, quote, 90% accuracy. The Key was reissued by a proper publisher, Penguin, in 2011, with Substantial differences. Uh, more than the remaining 10%, that's for sure. But Whitley could explain all that. See, the original version was also, quote, censored by sinister forces. Never you also mind that the original version was self-published. So, if it was censored by sinister forces, who were those sinister forces? This transition from extraterrestrial whisperer to full-on prophet at the turn of the new millennium makes itself known in not only his blog, podcast, and non-fiction musings, but also in his uh, revived fiction novels, uh, starting with several sequels to his biggest hit, The Hunger, now fortified with calcium, vitamin D, coconut oil, parapsychology, religion, and the divine. Oh, and aliens bursting out of holy sites on the Mayan day of Armageddon to steal humanity's souls to power their machines. Good times, good times. Now, this turn does also create an opportunity for Whitley to pull his wife Anne into the uh, somewhat dubious Fringer spotlight with him. 
After suffering a near-death experience in 2004 from a brain aneurysm, she also became a fiction writer and a spiritual expert, particularly on the afterlife. She helped him manage the podcast Dreamland and his long-running blog and web presence Unknown Country, and helped balance out the usual cranks ranting about UFO sightings, crop circles, abductions, anal probing, uh, an invasion, with the uh, spiritualists telling feel-good stories of brushes with the afterlife and the divine. In 2014, they published together Miraculous Journey, about not just her near-death experience, but also their experience as a couple, rising above her recent diagnosis of a brain tumor. Sadly, she died the next year, but there were still books to write. She communicated with her husband through mutual friends in the weeks following her death, and according to Whitley, quote, our relationship came back to life in a whole new way. With Anne on one side of the veil and me on the other, we wrote a book called The Afterlife Revolution. Yes, they had finally achieved power couple status. Literary necromancy. Uh-huh. Yeah. But is there any truth to this claim that Anne had shown him how to connect with ghosts in the afterlife using the monkey see, monkey do technique? Uh, who knows? There's no more or less evidence of this than the Keymaster, the Visitors, or that creepy time-traveling pedo in the woods outside of Austin. This is the same man who demanded extensive tests of his own temporal lobe for epilepsy, which sadly turned up totally healthy. The same guy who claimed repeatedly in interviews that he had been present at the Texas University uh, Whitman massacre. You know, the clock tower shooter guy. Directly in the line of fire, he described it in gruesome, bloody detail on national television. Details that happened to change each time he told the story, and that every single one of them all proved wildly contradictory to well-established facts shared by proven eyewitnesses and police investigations. Even his own mother wouldn't back him up and uh, said he wasn't on campus that day. Then again, he once allowed they could very well be false memories implanted by the visitors. You know, those visitors that came to him late one night in a certain cabin in upstate New York at a time that he described as follows. I was regularly drinking myself to sleep when we were there. I would listen to the radio until late hours, drinking vodka. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good atmosphere for uh, memory retention. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we know that, you know, like, like vodka is not responsible or alcohol is, and alcoholism is not responsible for creating uh, uh, hallucinations of any kind whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. It's well known for this. Yeah. Nothing to do with pink elephants. Yeah. Now, Scotch, on the other hand, whoo, lovely visions there. But yeah, you do have to wonder, it's like, oh, well, we're, we're inserting this up his ass. We might as well insert some memories while we're at it, too. Is that how they get in there? <laughs> yeah. well, for Whitley, it's, it's the, the, the closest, fastest route to his brain. Okay. Okay. So, anyway, more recently, he has tried his hand at historical fiction with uh, the two-volume epic story of espionage and stolen love. Oh, for fuck's sake, seriously? In Hitler's house? No way. Hang on. Hang on. Let me read this. William Weber was on tour. Mm -hmm. Meets struggling politician Adolf Hitler. Okay. Becomes a British intelligence asset. Falls in love with Hitler's mistress, a Berlin prostitute, because of course. Oh, oh, and she's secretly Jewish. Yup, okay, okay, okay. The actual fuck Amazon. Okay, the description continues. As the war intensifies, the increasingly deranged Hitler makes more and more bizarre sexual demands on both Willy and Carlotta, to the point that they are forced to do things with him that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. Come on! 
Look, it's simple. Boy meets war. Boy goes on holiday. Boy meets murderous psychotic demagogue. Demagogue introduces Boy to glitzy Nouveau Reich lifestyle. Boy realizes demagogue is murderous psychotic and decides he must be stopped at any cost. British intelligence recruits Boy. Boy has a fair with demagogue's mistress. Mistress and Boy fall in love while waiting for a chance to assassinate each other and or demagogue. Demagogue squirrels them all away in a secret love bunker in the mountains. Orders up an orgy with Boy and mistress as the best way to test Boy's loyalty. It's just a tale as old as time, really. Uh, thanks. You okay there, Brother Andy? Of course I'm fine. Why do you ask? Shut up, no one asked you. I'll be over there in the corner. Gibbering. Yeah, uh, so according to Amazon, this, um, book? I love to gibber! Yeah, I'm gonna go with book for now. Is, quote, the work of a pseudonymous history scholar. Pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. History scholar. Jonathan White Lane, which sounds like the name of a porn star, not a porn writer, and definitely not a, quote, expert on both modern European history and the history of the later Roman Empire. Because, you know, he was there in a past life, tutoring Caesarlings like Yoda in a toga and a bowl cut. In interviews after the two-volume series came out, and I'm not sure if Whitley was trying to explain his supposed historical expertise or excuse the wildly offensive subject matter, but he claimed that he was only able to write the book because an unknown couple broke into his home in 1989, because this guy really needs to get some fucking locks for his door, and forcibly implanted, yep, yet again implanted, a mysterious biomechanical device in his ear. This wondrous, if highly non-consensual technology left no scar, but it would occasionally switch on and turn his ear red. When the doctor tried to remove it with a scalpel, they found nothing, of course. Apparently the device was so advanced, it would move away from the blade. Amazing, simply amazing. Whitley, of course, was able to get a sample himself in the privacy of his own home when no one was looking, and analyzed it somehow to discover that it was metal, but it also had protein cilia to help it scuttle around. Metal with protein cilia, huh? Sounds like a good guy to me. <laughs> it then just hung out for about 30 years, then suddenly decided to show him information he never knew about the private life of Hitler, and he felt compelled to write. Which leaves us to question, is this in fact a work of fiction? Or a never-before-known secret true history of the private life of one of the most well-documented and studied individuals of the last century? We may never get the answer to this question, but we can surely still get a regular fix of Whitley. Streber continues writing to this day, with recent headlines on Unknown Country, his web blog, like Lab-grown cluster of neurons develops sentience plays video games. Nuclear ignition has been confirmed in a record-breaking fusion experiment. You can hear our man with the inner secrets of the outer limits every week now on seven, count him, seven different podcasts. And he just celebrated 25 years as the host of Dreamland, covering such topics as Dark matter monsters, cryptids, ball lightning, and secret life forms. The powers that be want you to forget crop circles. We don't choose to do that. You're not the father of me. A neuroscientist finds the source of consciousness, and it's not where we think. What is it up his ass? You better wrap it up, profligated. The recorder's BS compensators are starting to smoke. Yeah, yeah roger that, roger that. I, I think I've just about got this worked out. So, so, okay, let me put the pieces together. 
He didn't exactly invent the sport of UFO sightings, but he did give us deep revelations of their sexual proclivities. That shot him from hack sci-fi writer to one of the luminaries of the crackpot convention circuit. His life has been a sequence of improbable and unprovable events that ultimately led him to the revelation in the last memoir of his visitor series that the existence is a multiverse. And key fact, Solving the Communion Enigma was published in 2011. Meaning? Meaning he should sue Marvel. That was like five years before the Doctor Strange movie but also meaning it's entirely possible he wasn't making this shit up or tripping balls. What if he was remembering things that actually happened, except to parallel universe Whitley? And if that's true, then, oh my God. What? Every one of his big revelations accompanies a visit from a mysterious time-traveling, hashtag important detail, stranger who singled out one random sex-obsessed hack to carry their message. It's the same mysterious person every time. And that could only mean one thing. Spit it out quick, the tape deck's about to go. She can't take much more of this. The mysterious stranger has to be. Could somebody get the fucking door? Jesus, Zachariah, you have one job. Brother Zechariah has his axe throwing league tonight. Brother Methuselah is covering for him. Well, then where the fuck is he? The door's not going to get itself. Wait, is it? Uh, he's not here, just a pair of dentures on the floor. Weird. He never goes anywhere without those. Oh, fucking fine. Yeah, what? Excuse the intrusive fellowship. Have you seen anything odd tonight? Uh, you mean besides your face? <laughs> Good one. Uh, <laughs> yes, I spent too long at Rip Cycle this morning and had little time to glue my face to my head. Very observant. Uh, what? Why? Look, we're in the middle of something. So, could you, like, fuck off? I am intrigued by some things. Might I enter your domicile slash place of business? Um, no. Oh, shit. Quick, shut the door. What? Move! What's got you all freaked out? Do you know what that thing was? I was kind of hoping the Amazon guy with my 50-gallon barrel of lube. Ew, no. Mormons. Ew. Life's saved there, then, Brother Ethan. Anyway, let's go see where Brother Methuselah got to. No good layabout. That episode of the Cinemania Society was written and performed by Daniel Scribner, Ethan Ireland, and Andy Slack. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, with incidental music and sound effects courtesy of Epidemic Sound. The Summoning by Scott Buckley appears here under Creative Commons License 4.0. Visit soundcloud.com slash scottbuckley for more tracks by this artist. Legal representatives take note. This is a work of parody and or satire and should not be construed as allegations of actual fact. Allegedly! Visit our site at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com for more profiles in Cinemania, Conclave episodes, and more. 
leave some comments on our Facebook page, or hit us up on Twitter. Fine. X. Or chuck us a couple of bones on Patreon if you want. That'd be nice. No, seriously. It would be super nice, because running a podcast ain't free, you know. The Cinemania Society is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC. Happy holidays, you filthy animals.